Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Today we have on Mark Rossano for our monthly chat about the state of the economy, global affairs, and all of that fun stuff. But first, two things. Ryan recommends and our sponsor. I don't know if you've been following the news or not lately, but YouTube just announced that they are going to deplatform certain people for talking about certain things that may or may not be in the news right now. I'll let you figure that out. Folks, if you run a business, if you are a solopreneur or you have a big company and you don't have your own website, you got to get one. Okay, so two things. here: The recommendation is going to be my five-wide business newsletter where you can get tips and all this stuff there. The sponsor is Bluehost. You have to have your own hosting. So you can go through the process of acquiring clients on your own website through your own processes, your own procedures. Sign up for the five-wide newsletter for Ryder Commands. Get Bluehosting for your company. And if you do, send me the link and I will give you a shout out right here on the show. The topic that they are banning folks for, you might agree with that side. You might disagree. The problem is, and I'll explain this in more depth on a newsletter, is that as this shifts, as this moves, you might find yourself on the wrong side of this issue, cannot get access to your customers via social media. Therefore, you need to have your own website, randraysenior.com slash hosting, randraysenior.com slash hosting. You sign up, send me the link, send me the screenshot. I will give you a shout out on this podcast. Okay. Again, our guest is Mark Rossano. I always love talking to Mark. I call him the Matrix. Mark, the Matrix Rossano. He is back on for his once again monthly appearance he is the CEO of C6 Capital Holdings. He also has the Primary Vision Network. I'll, I'll link to his Twitter on here, and be sure to check that out. All of his links are right there on his Twitter page. Um, if you want to follow the economy, what's going on, seriously, Mark Rosano is one of the best, not on Twitter, not on LinkedIn, like in the world. He is one of the best guys in the world to follow on this. I know a lot of smart people. They follow Mark Rosano, and you should too. And if you're listening to this and you haven't given us a five-star, drop a five-star. Getting on a guy like Mark Rosano is not easy. We're proud to have him on. So please, please, please like and share. If you're watching on YouTube, as long as we're here, please give us a thumbs up. With that, Mark Rosano. Mark, it is good to get you on for my monthly recalibration. Just when I get excited, just when I think the things are going great, it's like, oh, it's it's Rosano Day. So <laughs> it's good to have you back on. How are you doing, buddy? Good, good. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's always a pleasure coming on and discussing the the nonsense that we see for for today. Whether it's we're up sixty handles, down sixty handles, it's a coin toss at this point <laughs> on which way we're going to be. Oh gracious! So last time, between the last time and this time, you took a slight victory lap on China over some bad uh, job numbers. Not China. On on on. Well, maybe it was China, but also some bad num job numbers in the U.S. So if you want to. Remind everyone um, where you're at on the state of the U.S. economy and job numbers, then I'll, I'll give you the floor here. <laughs> sure. So on the U.S. side, uh, the biggest focus has been for us on on wages in terms of wages coming down. And when you break it into the different quartiles, uh, with the two highest seeing the biggest uh, slowdown again. And then when you look at jobs, you know we had a bit of a miss in terms of where those expectations were. We do expect that to catch up a little bit as we go through September, given what some of the data has shown. But then when you look at a lot of the regional Fed data, we keep seeing these expanding slowdowns. And one of the things that we've been talking about since the beginning of this year was that the chip shortage wasn't going to go away this year. This wasn't this wasn't going to be a, two, a, a 2021 fix, but more of a 2022. And as we've 
as this continues, it looks like it's going to be less and less a Q1, Q2, but hopefully by Q3 or Q4. And then when we turn to China, so one of the things that we've been talking about is how China was was ripe for an implosion. And, and the reason why, you know, and we talked about this in, on February 11th was the actual show. And the biggest pushback was, and we, we titled it, I think it was the, uh, the Chinese debt bubble. And the question was, well, everything you just said could have been said in 2011, which is 100% accurate. But in 2011, when you had leverage ratio, your GDP to, uh, to debt at 100% versus 300%, you, know, you had all of these different backdrops, which have just essentially it been expanded and extrapolated and leveraged again and leveraged again. So eventually, the question became, is it the 101st? you know, go city that breaks it? Is it the thousand and first? Is it the 10,000 and first? You know, there, there's going to be that point where no matter what you do, the law of diminishing returns comes into play where every incremental dollar is actually negative. It, it, it has, no matter how much you do, it's going to be a negative throughput. And I think we've really reached that point, especially in China. Okay. Here's, so uh, throw a slight curveball here for you. Um, I like curveballs. So last year, the narrative out of Australia was, oh, my goodness gracious, the Chinese are trying to ruin our economy. The Chinese were like, oh, my goodness gracious, Australia, you're, you're having a free press. Um, we see what's going on with Australia with the lockdowns. How is Australia going to survive this? Because there's a lot of talk about the Chinese economy, what's going on. But it, it, there's a lot of self-inflicted damage in Australia. Can they make it through what they're going through right now? I think they they can make it through, uh, especially when you look at how the commodities are trading and and their importance for the commodity world. So while we we did think that iron ore, some of these other key pieces, we're going to see some slowdown. When you look at the gas to to coal switching or just gas demand in general, you're talking about a country that has that very well positioned on the thermal side, the met side, and then obviously on the LNG side. So when you're looking at some of these different backdrops, it's the commodities that will help them get to the other side and less about what's happening within the country itself in terms of their local consumption, local economy. But even though things haven't been as bad on the local side, given where we've seen some of the uh, the different lockdowns, I, I think I think the biggest question is going to be how extreme they've been and how they've been enforced because they're, they've been a bit aggressive on, on, on enforcing it, where I think in some places, even though it's there in name, you know, the enforcement's very lax. And it, I mean, given people are showing videos, so who knows if it's happening everywhere, but at least the ones that have been made public have been a bit aggressive for the, uh, for the level of exposure that some of these people are in the parks and whatnot, and, and you know, getting maced for, for being out walking on some park path by themselves. Yeah, it's a, it's a, Dad, it just seems a bit extreme. It feels, <laughs> no, it, it feels like they brought the Undertaker down there because there was some cop trying to choke slam some <laughs> lady the other day. It's like it's a little, little. little it's dumb. just you know when when you look at some of these things and given you know there's there's hierarchy. You know you don't want to lose your job, but you will, you also have a choice in that moment to pretend like you didn't see someone walking on a park path and True. and like that's why I just I look at some of these things that are being enforced and I'm. It's like, guys, it's okay to let this slide. Like, there, no one's going to die based on this. Yeah, one of the best scenes from, uh, was it the, the <clears throat> town with Ben Affleck? 
uh, you know, the, or, or whatever, the, the bank robbing movie. Oh, yeah, when, when the yeah. guy, when the cop sees him he and looks then turns the other yeah, way. Like, yeah. Okay, yep, yep, yep. Smart, smart cop, smart cop. It, it's just uh, some of these things, and and uh, given, you know, what what is the saying where it takes good people to do nothing for, for evil mm -hmm. to rise or something mm -hmm. along that? And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and this is like, you have to weigh your options here. And, and now just coming full circle, like the LNG side, you know, one of the things that we've, and this is coming from a beaten gas bowl. So I've, I've been calling the LNG story for, for a long time now, and it's starting to come full circle. You're starting to see that come through. Then obviously you have poor policy throughout the U S and Europe, uh, increasing the, the, the stress on the underlying economy. And if you think about where we sit right now, where the consumer is, and in the you know, the consumer isn't really there. The the struggle is, is real when you look at shrinkflation in terms of mm. boxes of pasta getting smaller mm -hmm. and now less than a pound across all of it. You get you know this pain point. And now as we head into winter, you know, you have natural gas prices at six bucks. That's that's not gonna be very good for heating, for consumption, and as we're as we're heading into I mean, even if it's a normal winter, I mean, this is not a good situation. Yeah, no, it's and I was I saw Big Warren, I think it was this morning on Twitter talking about um, the predictions for the winter. I think it was warmer in the U.S., colder in Europe. I think is what his analysis was. How much faith do you put in those kind of long-term market uh, weather forecast? Uh, I'm pretty sure that if you just took a coin and flipped it, that would be just as predictive, <laughs> just in terms of where things are, and and that's that. I think that's the underlying problem because so when you look at some of the forecasts. They're warmer than, but then if you look at the farmer's almanac, and there's two different types of almanacs that come out, it's predicting a colder than uh, winter. So there's a certain amount of deviation. But again, it's when does La Nina form? Like what? Like when does that happen? Because La Nina is gonna is gonna shift some things up, and then if it if it's if it's a weak La Nina or a strong La, La Nina, like it's just we know it's there we know that it's it, it could start to strengthen and we could be in that situation heading into winter but does it form in uh in uh what are we in uh, september so if it does it form in november or does it form in in late january and that's going to shift some of this so again I, I think as he said you know we never know what the weather is going to be 3 days out so all of these are just estimates based on the predictions we have at this moment that is looking at you know uh ocean degrees, uh, atmospheric temperatures and movements. And again, anything and everything can change. Okay. I'm going to keep asking you this question until probably a long time. Let's be honest here. <laughs> what is going on? This, we talked about the job, of mark, job market a minute ago. What is really going on? Because if I go to a fast food joint here in town, 50-50 um, that their inside is open. Some of them aren't even serving breakfast right now. You know, you, if you go to the the stores, there's certain items that just aren't there. How much of that is, you know, uh, employment based? And so you got two things. You got like the actual physical workers just aren't there. People are hiring. And then you also see shortages. How much is that these ships that are um, locked in port? W what is going on on some of these more um, things, the tangible things that, that, that someone like myself can see? Sure. So one of the things, let's just tackle the job side first. So one of the things that we've looked at is when you look at the JOLTS numbers, which is just job openings, and you look at the job openings, and you're like, how does that make sense? Like, are there really that many jobs open? And then you look at the wages data, and you look at the wages on, on the top quartile, the second to top quartile going down, 
you know, top earners. And then you look at the bottom quartile exploding in terms of, you know, people going from $14 an hour to $18 an hour. But if you had to put a number on the, the, the most expensive of $50 an hour, that's now down to 45. And when you start, start breaking this down, and I think it's, it's interesting is one, you have a big amount of retirements. So you have retirements that have accelerated. So realistically, are you going to pay someone who's 65 the same that you're going to pay someone who's 45? Well, no, because they might've been there longer. They might've you know moved up and gotten uh, incremental raises. So that's going to move things down. But now you're seeing companies that are saying, look, do I need one high earner mm-hmm. or can I do it with two low earners? Mm-hmm. So instead of paying one person $50 an hour, can I pay two people $20 an hour and save 10 bucks on the back end and be more efficient? And that's where we sit right now on some of these other areas where you're getting this, these jolts but or these job openings, but how many of them are there? And, and let's be fair, if you're making $50 an hour, are you how far down are you willing to go to get a job? Are you willing to take the 20 or are you going to wait? And that's where you kind of get some of this friction. Then if you you shift over to uh, what you're talking about with, with some of these, these areas of, you know, whether it be... Uh, you know, McDonald's, Burger King, you know, some of these other low, low wage jobs, or at least, you know, things that are ru- rudimentary or, or, or um, uh, which, what's the like, low income, minimum yeah, low income. Income. but then you look at truck driving, then you mm-hmm. look at construction, then you look at some of these areas where you don't, you can get training on the job. You can go and get your CDL license. I mean, at this point, Europe, you can go to you can go to Europe for three months on a free visa uh, to the UK on a free visa because they're so short truck drivers. So if you're starting to look at some of this, it's like, well, do I want to go take orders and sit at a fryer in front of McDonald's, you know, making 15, 16 dollars an hour? Or can I go work on a construction site, make 28 and and actually learn some different type of skill? And that's where you're starting to see some of these pivots. Hold on, real, real quick. Just make sure yeah. this this is a good point. So, what I've struggled to to determine is, is where do those workers go? Because you know the unemployment stuff is is, is ended. It's like where do they go. And so you're you're saying that it's not that they disappeared, or they moved out of the city, or whatever. They just found a job that pays substantially more because of the housing boom or the trucker shortage. And so what you what you saw was someone making ten to fifteen an hour at McDonald's took you know, 20 hours of training or whatever it was, or started with their cousin's construction company. Now they're making 25, 30, whatever it is. Right. Uh, and so those people barring a barring losing those jobs, they're never coming back to the low end jobs. Right. And then, and then on the other side, you have the exp- the exponential increase of jobs in terms of going from one position to two positions at a lower price. And that's where you get this friction because some people are sitting there saying, well, why is unemployment staying this so elevated given the fact that there's so many job openings? And then the two comments that come back are, one, salary. So the salary is too low. And they're saying, look, I'm not going to accept this job, which just means, which helps kind of prove out the point that people or companies are trying to save money by essentially splitting this up. And then on the other side, from the company's perspective, it's skill set. Because people are, are sitting there and saying, there's so many job open openings. Why am I going to go and, and work at McDonald's when I can go and try to get a construction job? So then the construction guys are saying, well, I, I want you to have some experience. Like, this is ridiculous. And that's where you're starting to get this friction. 
because people are trying to sw switch industries. You know, maybe you are a waiter, bartender, something, and your bar is closed, your restaurant is closed. Or as you said, that restaurant is now at 40% and they have no interest of going back to 100%. Well, now you have to change your industry because other uh, restaurants are closed. So where are you going to go? Are you going to go into retail? Are you going to go into construction, truck driving, bus driving, something that's going to essentially bridge out but you don't have any training. And that's where you're getting some of this friction that is keeping these numbers where they are. It's interesting because my whole business model um, with what I do is taking and working for multiple companies for a, a, a relatively small fee compared to what they'd pay me if I was full time. And the benefit they get is um, someone with my skill set for a fraction of the, of the fee. And the time they get is probably more than if I were to build them by the hour, but it works out pretty well. Um, and I found that that's really been a lot of people were receptive to that because it kind of fits that needle, the threads that needle what you're talking about, which is, hey, we don't want to pay someone a full time salary, um, or maybe we could have two or three people, and they're trying to de determine. So you come in there and say, okay, well, listen, I'll charge a you know retainer plus or something like that. Right. Um, and, and you could find that there's a lot of companies that need that because they need the skill set, and they're not entirely convinced so that they need someone 40 hours a week anymore. Right. Um, and so, or they could pay you uh, a pretty hefty commission because they're not paying you health insurance and all this other stuff. So it's, it, 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 if you can be creative in this economy, I think you could find a way to work. Well, and that's, and that's the, the big difference between 1099 and W2. So if someone 1099s you, they're not paying your taxes. They're not paying unemployment on you. They're not paying, you know, FICA. They're not paying all of these things that go into and get taken out of your paycheck and the company has to pay that's saved. And then for you, that goes, well, I'm not getting healthcare. I'm not getting some of these benefits. So then that comes out of your, out of your pocket on the back end pre-tax. So it, it makes sense in terms of some of these pieces, because they're looking at this and saying, look, I don't really need that guy for 40 hours. I need him for 20 hours a week and I can 1099 them, save money. I can shrink my footprint in terms of, you know, how much square footage I have for the company. I can shrink, I can shrink my, my workforce in the sense of my W2 count. And then I can have my 1099 because if you look at everything that has happened from Obama on down, you know, small companies get a lot of these uh, benefits. So if I can go under a hundred employees, you know, there's, there are things that start to open up for me on a tax savings benefit on a, on a other types of means, even though maybe, you know, pre COVID it, it's just, and this is one of the things that, you know, not to go full circle, but one of the things that we said in 2019, as we, you know, we thought the market was, or at least the economy was really starting to slow down. And one of the big things for us was that you had these people that are, that were going to get let go and never come back. And it's because when you look at these, these, um, some of these positions, some of these companies, let's say they had a hundred employees and they cut 50 because, you know, COVID hit, but realistically they need 75. So at the end of this, you're going to have 25 people that no longer have a job because realistically in 2019, they were already expendable, but the, it's so hard to fire someone or to let someone go because of, you know, fear of lawsuits, fear of HR, you know, do you have just cause? Can they come back? You know, how much severance do I have to give them? Where when you look at COVID, it was like, hey, guys, sorry, COVID, it's COVID, sorry. And then the, and then what did the government do? The government helped because what did, they gave uh, extended benefits. So now instead of you had it, having to pay severance, even though some, I'm not saying some, a lot of companies did, but you also had 
government severance. So you had this this double whammy that kept people from having to come back and say, "Oh, you fired me because I I was I was an ethnicity, I was a woman, I was an older man." Uh, that 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 it now gets thrown out, making it much easier. Yeah, and uh, morning to Cody Tucker. Thanks for hopping in here with us. Um, th then the final thing is I'll just say is that. You know, if you're out there and you're unemployed and you have, um, you know, you're, you're not a maybe a manual labor type, you're not a construction type guy or something. I'm not that right. So uh, management, sales, marketing, things I've done. Um, I would encourage you and you're looking for a job to, to stop and to sit down and realize that you can probably pick up 10 to 15, maybe 20 clients um, that you can charge a small retainer, 500 to three thousand dollars a month and then go out and perform tasks for them on their behalf. And then if you manage your time well, you could handle a multitude of clients and give them a far better ROI um, than they're going to get on, you think about $3,000 a month, that's only a $36,000 a year salary, right? And so if you can improve the value of what they would pay for $36,000 a year, then you've you've offered them a good, a good solution. And so there's a lot of creative ways right now in the market to capitalize. And, and a lot of companies still have that position open. Because they're looking for someone full time, but and you you might be filling a void while they search, and it's taking longer. And for them, they're in no rush because they have you. They they're getting the job done, and that's where again you're seeing some of these. Which again, not to say that that all of these jobs that there aren't jobs out there. I just think some of these numbers are very inflated for very different reasons. That yeah. is making things look a little bit better than they actually are. Absolutely. And there's people who are sitting there right now saying, oh man, I need to find a salesperson for $87,000 a year plus benefits and all the things you mentioned. And there's opportunities for you to go in there and to do that. So to be opportunistic, I think is the thing is that when you're hearing what Mark's saying, this uh, Mark is the, is the matrix. Um, so you gotta, you gotta take that and say, okay, well, how do I, <laughs> how do I take the red pill steel and, and thread that needle? <laughs> so how do you capitalize on that? Okay. Um, let's see here. Let's move on to let's let's talk. You touched a little bit about this. But let's talk about uh, Natty Gas. It crossed over mm -hmm. six this morning. Right now, it's at five dollars and eighty cents, roughly. Um, you know, I, some of the calls for this winter with Natty Gas. We talk about the weather some, but where we're at today, how strong are the fundamentals on on natural gas? So when we look at this from from two different perspectives, so let's start with frac spread counts. So one of the things that 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 we do at Primary Vision is we look at the frac spread counts across uh, seventeen basins within the U.S., looking at the lower forty-eight. And one of the things that we've been talking about and really trying to drive home that eighty percent of that national count of two fifty-seven is oil. You know when you so when you compare twenty twenty-one to twenty nineteen, twenty eighteen. There is like right now at the Permian, we, we have 133. When you look at where we were previously, we're right on the money in terms of where we've been in over the historics, but where we don't have that activity is the Northeast, is the Haynesville, is dry gas, Oklahoma. So when you start looking at where we are on a fundamental basis, natural gas just isn't there. And then obviously, you know, we're, we're not producing oil the same way we were. So then that takes down some of that associated gas. So that's just on the supply side. So on the supply side, things are very different in terms of where we are. Now let's take this to the demand side. Well, you have six MTPA leaving the coast every month. We're at an all-time high or at least near all-time high in terms of LNG exports from the U.S., 
we've increased demand in terms of the residential basis because most most new homes are going to have a natural gas hookup. So you have natural gas increasing in terms of the residential and then on the commercial, because what let's look at it from twofold. One, you have you had new pet chem coming online. You had new facilities coming online that are going to run on natural gas. And then at the same time, we have peakers. Why? Because we've built wind, we've built solar, and that's going to have a back, uh, essentially a backstop of natural gas fired power gen. So when you start looking at the dynamics, we're in a very different place. So I just pulled up where we are on storage. So right now we have about 3.082 trillion cubic feet in, in uh, so almost 3.1 trillion cubic feet in storage. When we go back through history, the, the only times we've been lower is 2008, uh, 2018 and 2014. So when you think about those dynamics, we're in a very different place now than we were then. Even 2018, when you consider LNG demand, where's that going? You know, and then local demand that continues to grow. So now take that to the next level of, well, what is the replacement? Can I run propane? Can I run something else? Well, LPG demand globally has not gone down. Even in COVID, it was the first thing to come back. It was, it, we, we've been liquids bulls since 2019 when we were saying, look, oil demand is going to get a little bit slower. We're, not to say that it's going to stop because we're not saying we're at peak demand. It's just you're going to see a shift. And that shift is going to show more LPG consumption, more naphtha consumption, consumption because of petrochemical growth and that petrochemical build out that we've seen in the Middle East, in China, that's going to continue to, but it's not so much on the oil side, it's those derivatives and liquids that are coming out from it. So when you just look at the dynamics, we're in a very different place than we were in these other periods. Now, again, We've been here before. We could have a, a super warm winter and the can gets kicked again, but we have poor policy because we can't have the Northeast responding in the way it has because we haven't built pipelines. So you still have the constraints that we knew about five years ago, not fixed. So you still have a constrained Northeast and the Haynesville becomes your only real swing production, which is where we see uh, additional activity as we, as we discussed on our frack spread show. Okay, and the other thing, when you said 2018, um, if I'm thinking about this right, the difference between now and 2018 was you had huge amounts of drilling in the Permian, which wasn't 100% oil, right? You have 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, whatever those ratios were for those various wells. And so you had, at one time, the Permian, I think, was the number one producer of natural uh, gas uh, in the U.S., yeah. right? Well, look so at Wahoo. I mean, Wahoo right. went negative. I mean, that's right. why you're looking at, you just have to look at the, where a lot of this stuff is crossing to see just where that overhang really was. And we, we don't have that right now. The question, right. okay, at least at the same scale we did 2018. The question I have for you then is, if I told you that you know WTI would be sitting at 74 and Natty Gas would be at $5.87, you would tell, in 2018, you'd have told me the Permian would have so many rigs out there, you couldn't see past them. They'd be this thick, full of rigs. Yep. <laughs> so are we going to, is it going to take getting through the midterms to see if we have some policy shifts? Or will 2022 inspire more people to come back out? I, I believe it seems to be mainly capital-driven. And, and, okay, in some parts of the country, like Denver or Los Angeles, has policy stuff going on there. But the Permian, it seems to be capital restraints. Um, I don't know, but these numbers are, are very lucrative, and yet the, the, the rig count isn't just blowing out the water. Well, it's it comes down to rig count versus frack spread count. So when you look at the frack spread count, you know we're we're at a at a spot that is very comfortable for growth within the Permian to see things continue. 
It's just we, you know, when you think about new technology, dual semi-frac, dual frac, depending on the uh, the terminology that you use, has seen adoption in the Permian. Where it's about fifteen to twenty percent of completions are at that level, so you don't really need the same type of frac spreads to to maintain some of this growth. And then at the other side of things, on the rig side, you know, we, we're very efficient. We've gotten to the point where you just don't need the same type of equipment. But as you get this expansion, you know, your A team, so you you consolidate. So you take your best guys and you keep consolidating down. And then as you expand, you take some of these guys that then they become foremans on their own. They have their own equipment. They're maybe not as good or, or a little bit slower. But then you have AI, you have technology, you have some of this redundancy that has been held in the computer that now can help you essentially not lose the same efficiency. So instead of slipping from, let's call it 18 to 26 days. So instead of going from, let's take the average of 23 day drill time, instead of going from 23 day drill time to 33 day drill time, you can slip to 26, 28. So now you're still more efficient. You still have some of those gains and you just don't need the same type of equipment that you did in 2018, 2017 and the like. So with that being said, how much more um, production can the U.S. put online? I think at this point we have an exit rate between 11.5 and 11.7. So we initially said in November of last year that we were going to have an exit rate of 11.3 to 11.5. But as we got to March and we saw how aggressively we've seen frac spreads come, uh, come back where they were, we shifted that up. Now, as we get into next year and looking at 22, given where the ducks are, you know, we, we do expect to see rigs come back more aggressively than, than spreads because we think frac spreads kind of balance out at, and reach a high point of about 275 and we're at 257. So give you an idea of kind of where that, where that issue is. But then on the rig side is where we see more of that activity. And that's really going to gear up and set us up for 2022. But we've also learned we don't have that much demand for us type crudes. So we, we had a natural kind of bottleneck when we looked at where our exports were going, what was being left in storage. So I really think that 12.3, maybe 12.5 is kind of the peak at this point, not to say, you know, I, I, when I start looking at where do we exit 2022 for me, it's about a 12.1 to 12.3 million barrel a day. Like we're just, we just don't need or, or really want this explosive growth. When you look at 2018, like we were going to, we're going to produce 15 million barrels a day out of the U S on our way to 19. It's like, no, no, we're not. We shouldn't. And that was one of our calls back in July of 19, that we were starting to see some of this headwind and slowdown just given on the lack of international demand. Well, it kind of goes back to your analogy earlier about COVID with the jobs, right? So COVID was kind of the perfect reason to reset the U S oil industry as well, because you know, uh, the great Anas had been talking about crude quality and big ore and mm -hmm. we talk about crude quality. And so uh, for years and years, and of course, the Matrix himself has been talking about it. But um, COVID allowed for us to kind of go, OK, yeah, we were, we were slightly overproducing there a bit. Well, and, and a lot of individuals don't really appreciate what oil quality means and, and, and how there's, you know, 154 different types of oil. There's, you know, 54 that are common, like 28 that are commonly traded, 54 that are available in terms of blending and what you can take down. 
So when you look at the API quality, which is just what is the gravity that can go into the pad three, which is where our largest amount of refiners are, they were built for heavy. They were built to take uh, Middle East, you know, Mayan, uh, you know, stuff that's heavy, gross, sour that nobody really wants. But if you set up your refiner properly, you can make great product out of it, which means you need coking capacity, which means that you, you, you need a certain amount of complexity but we don't produce that in the U.S. In the U.S., when you look onshore, we're at 42 to 48 when the average API on the coast was as low as 32. It has now come up to about 34. And it's just because there's there's a certain you can only go so light on the coker and in the cracker before you start to have mishaps and, and mishaps, not, not in a dangerous way, but in terms of making poorer quality because it's too light. And so I always describe it as. When you have heavy crude, you start with a thousand carbon molecules. And then when you have light, you start with a hundred and each part of the process steals its part of the, the carbon, you know? And, and so by the, if you're starting with a hundred, by the time you get to the top, you just don't have any left where, when you start with a thousand, you have more that can be taken through the process, creating a better suite of products. And that's where they've, they've added equipment, they've added hydro treaters, they've added reformate, they've added, uh, you know, uh, alky units to try to capitalize on the amount of light sweet, but there's only so much you can actually do, which means that the Delta needs to be exported. And when you look at how long Nigeria is, how long Angola and West Africa is in terms of quality, then you look at, uh, Guiana in terms of what they're coming on. There's just not the demand and there's a lot of competition which again limits the amount that we can actually produce into the international market. Who buys Pioneer's acreage and how much does it go for? <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it's a good question. And, and I don't know if anybody is willing to take down that acreage given, you know, when you look at Shell, you know, Shell sold out, you, you have this, this pivot. And I think, uh, I think in, uh, there was a headline before that a new pension fund is, is divesting there their oil assets in, which is funny as you look at oil and gas and, you know, especially gas in the middle of a, of a crisis. So when you look at where it is, I just don't think you have the balance sheet to buy pioneer. But if I were to say, where would it go? I would say 28,000 an acre. And you're buying it. Is that, you, I noticed you didn't pick a company. So is that like you, you, <laughs> Rosano, Rosano Inc is buying it. Is that what's happening? I, I mean, why not? Sure. But the, uh, <laughs> you're the, breaking the issue, news right here. <laughs> the this. issue is just is just there there isn't the balance sheet because I think Conoco took itself out buying Shell, and when you look at Exxon, Chevron, you know, and, and the other majors, they're not looking to pick up new acreage at this point. Yeah, you're not going to see a hey, we'll pay you a billion dollars to not buy this. Like those those days are probably gone. <laughs> well, and, and that's when that's when you know I I gave a a, a, a talk for in the uh, in one of the conferences yesterday. And one of the things that we talked about was OPEC, because when you look at NOCs, you know, the, the issue is, oh, nobody's been investing. It's like an NOC is a national oil company. They don't have to tell you anything. They can be investing for three years and you will never know until one day, all of a sudden you're like, wait, how much do you have production wise? And when you look at Saudi, Kuwait, UAE, Iraq, that's really been the case at this point, but, but it's different if you look at Nigeria and Angola. So I'm not saying it's all equal, but look at the UAE. UAE is now at 4.5 million. You know, they, you know, they're quoted at 4.2, but there's, there's leeway to 4.5. And if you're Saudi Arabia, 
based on where the market was not even six months ago, when, when things were trading at 50, you're going to come out and say, oh, by the way, I can produce 13 million barrels a day. No, you're not going to say that. But then at the same time, you have to consider how are they adjusting their local consumption? They're trying to adopt more gas. They're trying to adopt more renewables. And for some, in some areas, based on the type of uh, soil they have, the type of uh, space they have, it makes sense. So that just puts more oil on the water, even though production hasn't changed, they're just, con they can consume less. And that's where you start to see some of these shifts in terms of what is being produced versus what is being exported. Explain for us what's going on in the UK with the gasoline shortage. <clears throat> So there was, this is, you know, this is where it gets fun and it's not funny but at all, but when you look at what, look at emerging markets, right? So when you're in an emerging market, I wrote articles talking about Sudan, um, Lebanon, uh, Iran. And when you look at the backdrops, you know, a lot of these individuals have diesel fired generators because, you know, who knows if your electricity is going to work and how, for how long, at what day. So you need a certain amount of redundancy. So now you'd shift yourself to the UK where they had up to three weeks of time where the wind wasn't blowing. They, they essentially have an issue when you look at the interconnect of getting gas from the mainland. And then they've actually retired a lot of storage. So storage for them is very tight on a, a just regardless, even without what is happening right now, they have less storage than they have in previous years. So what do you have right now? You have wind not blowing, which brings on the peakers. So then you bring on the peakers, which then starts to draw your natural gas. Then you have an issue where, okay, well, it's not enough. So you're going to have to start having these rolling blackouts. So now you have these rolling blackouts and these people are like, all right, well, I have, I have my generator. I'm going to go get gasoline. I'm going to go get diesel. Then you go to a, to a, a petrol station and they're out. And then you start to panic. You're like, wait, 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 wait. Why are they out? Well, I, now instead of buying two containers. I'm calling my wife, bring, bring the barrel because we're going to fill up. And then you get this panic roll and then it get makes headlines. And then there's an additional panic. And then you come to a point where, okay, well, let BP calls up and says, Hey, let's, let's, let's bring in additional, um, tr uh, you know, trucks. And the guy on the other side laughs and says, what additional trucks? There are no drivers. I have the truck here, but can you send me the driver? So then you, you have an issue where the demand pull increases, you already have a tight supply issue, and then you have the supply chain broken in between. So with that being said, are you a fan of price gouging? To, to, to stop, to curtail some of that? So there's, uh, there's really, just real quick, just to set the table. Yeah. There's a couple of solutions here. A, you can do um, you know, a cap on how much one person could buy. Um, okay, that's one, one solution. Uh, B, you could let them buy them however much they want to buy. Um, the third option is price gouging, which is, hey, you know, the first gallon, the first 10 gallons or 20 gallons or whatever it is, is at normal price. But then above that, we're going to charge you a huge amount of money um, to keep you from buying it all up. And it, I mean, I, I don't know how people have have their water bills uh, calculated, but that's that. I mean, that's really what water is like, the, you know, to incentivize you to use less. You know, once you get past a certain gallon point, then for every additional gallon, you get paid extra. So I, I do think that I wouldn't call it price gouging. I would say that you're, you're taking advantage to limit the, it's like, look, if you want to buy more, that's fine, but you're going to pay for it because I'm going to take the money you're buying extra with mm -hmm. to then go hire an additional truck driver 
to then make up for some of these issues. So I, I think that there's a certain amount that is okay, especially if you have a certain cap in the sense of, look, first 20 gallons is X. Anything above 20 is going to be Y, and I mm -hmm. can take that money and then use that to help support my supply chain, try to adjust well, it a little bit. But the, the other thing is we know is that companies that deal with um, you know, rate fluctuations, they make their buying decisions a lot differently. So if you were looking to buy steel a few years ago, you're like, oh, my gosh, the steel price might go up. I need to buy it. And so it, it, it impacts how much steel they have sitting around or wood or whatever it is because um, they can't unload it because the price is out of whack. So it really makes them stop and think about before I purchase a bunch or not enough, what's the best method? Consumers, because they don't feel that pain, to your point, they go and say, hey, you know, bring the tank. We're filling that baby up because they don't have to deal with it. But So price fluctuation or price gouging or whatever you call it um, probably, um, would maybe help them recalibrate and think about what they're going to do with it because if they paid two dollars a gallon let's say and then they pay seven dollars a gallon well they're gonna be pretty upset after doing it the first time in two months from now gas is back to two dollars you're like god i got all that gas out there for for seven bucks if i just would have i just would have waited <laughs> you know, yeah. i wouldn't have lost all that money and, and i i think that's a natural way to kind of cap people so instead of mandating you can only do x you know by saying look you can buy y that's mm -hmm. fine but mm -hmm. you're gonna pay for that right and because they can't do anything with it either. They're just going to sit around and. Well, and that's uh, the thing. It's like how much are, are that, that's going to make you question how much are you going to store? Like how, how much is that gasoline really worth to you? And, and is that going to make you balk and say, all right, well, you know, $7 is a lot. I'm, I'm just going to wait, see how this plays out. I have my backup and we'll go from there. And then over time, you hope that you have some of that, uh, that catch up when you look at the truck drivers getting stuff from point A to point B and some of that you know, essentially refill that we should see that happens kind of naturally over time. I know I've said it on the show. I wrote about it last year when we shut down the economy, I equated it to Jurassic park. They turn off the master switch to reset the fences. And he said, what's going to happen? He goes, I don't know. We've never done this before. And I equated it. That's what we did. We turned the master switch off. We turn it back on. We didn't know. You kind of had some ideas of what might happen, but you couldn't fully predict where things would go wrong. How long, how much longer, I should say, until uh, the park is up and running again at normal capacity? Uh, so it's a, it's a great question, and it's going to come down to the consumer, and, and it's going to be a matter of how much price increase is the consumer willing to accept before they either – change their buying habits and or or try to find alternatives. And right now when you look at the prices received versus you know prices paid versus prices received there's been a fairly healthy pass through of price and and what has been accepted. And now you're starting to see a lot of balking in terms of wait, how much is that again? I'm not yeah like this is I am not going to buy the same I have and, and then and then you factor in shrinkflation, which then complicates that. So one of the things that I was tweeting about the other day, and this has been the case in other types of uh, pasta, but Barilla is now you know cutting even more that's below a pound, which is shrinkflation. So that means that if you had a family of four, not that, I mean, I can finish a pound of pasta myself, but you know, in theory, that pound of pasta can feed four people. You know, I think on the box it says six, which is an utter lie. But when you think about as the shrinking side, it's like, okay, well, my family's size hasn't changed. They're still eating the same amount. So now instead of making one box of pasta, I'm making one and a half, 
which means that my price is going up in a different way. And that's where you start to see some of these shifts. So as we go forward, and this is just an example, like Rigatoni is the one that when you look at the, mm -hmm. at the, uh, the amount, but then if you look at the tricolor, you look at, and not just pick on Barilla because they're all, um, it's seen the same thing is this is where you have the consumer struggling. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that came out was, oh, you know, um, you know, household wealth is up again. It's like, yeah, it's up again because of real estate and equities. How many people that are that are that would question, can I afford to buy an extra box are not the people that made money on their on their equity investments. Those are the people that are, can I afford to, to heat my home? You know, can I go to Chipotle to give my kids a treat or you know, this is a, a di very different conversation that's happening for these, you know, the, the other 75% of America. So yeah, when you it, look at some of these shifts, it's a, it's a real problem. Yeah. And I was going to say, for those listening, uh, Mark sent a tweet or retweeted a tweet. Uh, it was a retweet. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the rigatoni, uh, the box on the left is 454 grams. The box on the right is 410 grams, same packaging, same box. Everything looks basically the same. Uh, and according to this person, the price was the same, but you lost those those crucial right. grams. And, you know, if you're thinking about it in the context of a, a mom who or, or dad or whoever does the family shopping, right, they're out there and they're like, oh, okay, that's the box that we always get. We need two of these boxes to feed our family. And then we get, you know, a pound of this or whatever they make through the meal and they come home and it's like, oh, wait, that didn't, we barely had enough this time or we didn't right. have enough this time. Or we actually plan to have enough plus lunch for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Now we don't. It's like, okay, well, now I got to go buy more. And if the price is the same, you know, so all those things are compounding on people. Right. Uh, and, and it's, it's you know, it, it doesn't sound like a lot, but if it's uh, the box of rigatoni and the box of cereal and then this over here. And so your whole shopping trip, you which you normally allocated for, um, costs the same, but you're getting substantially less because you're spending four or $600 on groceries, but you're getting, you know, 75% of what you normally get, uh, right. then you've got a big problem. And then, and then take that with prices have gone up. So not only right. have you had prices go up, but now they're shrinking what that where that dollar goes, and that's where you continue to see this stress. So right now we haven't seen all that much adjustment from the consumer because you still have some excess savings, you still have some of this excess that has come through from government transfers, but as you just said, where I'm getting seventy five percent, twenty five percent less that additional that's in savings goes away quickly. And that doesn't go to discretionary spending. That doesn't, I, I'm not looking at that and saying, I'm going to go take my kids to Disney world. I'm going to, I'm going to look at this and say, wow, how much am I going to have to allocate additional to food just to keep everything the same? And, and that's where we start to see this pivot. So as you slow down the purchasing that allows the supply chain to catch up. Now, the other issue is when you look at the U.S., we have exported our supply chain for the last 40 years, and then we've accelerated that over the last 10. And when you look at inflation and you look at where this inflation exists, there is a huge issue abroad. And, and when you look at producer price index, because, and, and I've said it before, you know, when I was saying that inflation was going to be an issue, everyone's like, oh, you're talking cost. It's like, okay, buddy, how do you think companies come up with their price? They look at their cost and figure out how much they can charge. So you have to go to the top of the supply chain to then look at how this is going to happen down the supply chain to the end user, whether that be B2B, B2C. It's not 
I, I'm not I'm not doing crazy arithmetic here. Like I'm talking you know second grade math of just adding and subtracting. So when you look at the underlying piece and how that continues to get passed through, and then you look at you know so everything as simple as and we continue to say oh, oh technology is deflationary, up until a point. Because then at what point is it no longer deflationary for two reasons? One, the price has already gotten so low that it really can't go much lower or the raw materials to make that component has now gone to a point where prices have to go up to increase underlying supply. And you see a lot of that getting passed through. So, I mean, the, the joke, the running joke was, you know, five years ago, you sign up for, for a credit card and you'd get, you know, 42 inch flat screen thrown in with you signing up, you know, now you have such shortfalls, you have these prices that you're just not seeing the same type of pass through because you have that pressure across the supply chain in terms of shipping, availability of containers, the availability of, of labor to move these pieces. And then politics. I mean, how many people are, you know, don't want to uh, support China? How much is China struggling and, and, are, and have to adjust their own components? You know, we've come to rely so aggressively on one nation without any consideration of, well, what happens if things stop working the way we know them to, you know, can I go uh, to Vietnam, Malaysia, India, Latin America in a different capacity? And the and we're finding out the answer is no, you, you can't. And that's something that is being addressed. But again, that also takes cost. So now you're increasing your cost to address the issue. And that cost is going to be spread over the course of years, you know, not just a quarter. And that's where you're going to see this, I think, the, this compounding issue. Now, not that, I'm sorry, I apologize for the long answer. But then you look at 3M, Unilever, uh, Kimberly, uh, P&G. Essentially, if you look around your room, 50% of those of those companies i just named uh, 50% of the stuff in your room comes from those companies and they're talking about raising prices again another 10 to 15% then you look at fedex fedex is taking their rates up another 5% there's that's diesel that's ppe that's just volume that they need to account for because people are going to the store less and relying more on delivery so again all of these things compound to make that that cost and then what do you do well I'm not making as much, so I'm going to buy a little less gasoline because I'm not going to go three hours away for for a trip. I'm going to go an hour away to that park that we've been needing to go to and not going away. So then you start to see this re revolving consumption adjustment, which is why I made that comment that if you're looking at Chinese GDP and think that that's not going to impact Chinese crude demand, I, I that's that's just that, that's not how this works. Yeah, and I, and I think what you might see, I'm curious your thoughts here, is so I kind of live in a rural area, relatively speaking, um, and so there's a lot of local farmers who have, you know, cattle, pork, and I work with some of them, um, you know, they get some, you know, just farmers who, you know, putting out, you know, vegetables and stuff like that. And so if I wanted to, I can just go directly to them and buy. If you're in New York City, you are uh, a lot more dependent on the supply chain, uh, at least in that area, than I am. Now, I have my own dependencies and problems. Um so will you see people in the big cities look to maybe even move out for that reason because the prices for food and things like that become um, higher? Uh, cost of living is, is, is a huge shift. And, and I think as you get more of that flexible schedule and one of the things that we've been talking about, you know, one of the number one things that people are looking for when they change jobs is flexibility. So if I can work from home and, and I don't have to be in an office, well, 
do I need to be in New York or can I be in Ohio? You know, do I need to be in New York or can I be in Tennessee? And, and then all of a sudden you start to get these shifts because I'm paying these exuberant taxes for what? Because you know, everything, like you said, costs more. Like just to give an anecdotal story, I, I love Wegmans. I, I went to Syracuse for my MBA. I had to get, I got to experience a Wegmans. It was life-changing. I, you would never hear me talk about some food store uh, as like this great thing. And, and we got to, and they're, they're from Rochester. So we got to meet the CEO and, and talk to them. And, and I said to them, I was like, are you going to bring Wegmans to Long Island? And he laughed and said, absolutely not. I was like, well, how come? He's like, because I can't maintain my prices getting to you. He's like, there is just tolls, traffic, um, you know, inventory, you know, am I going to go to N New Jersey? Am I going to go to Westchester? Am I going to go to Connecticut? Yes, because I never have to worry about bridge and tunnel traffic in the same way. I can, there's ways around it that I can adjust my logistics. And that's, that's a real thing. And that's, again, that, that filters down into those costs that I think, you know, you don't get when you talk about having either local farming or just an ease of getting to my facility, helping me essentially uh, protect some of that cost increase. Okay. I'm going to try to do a new segment with you here. And I, I suspect if I'm not careful, I know what you're going to say. So let me see here. So you come on once a month. It's like the last Tuesday of the month or whatever it is. So between now and next month, give us one signal that would be negative and one signal that would be positive that we should look for that could lead to a monumental shift. So in other words, um, what might be the best thing possible in the next month that could come out? It doesn't have to be realistic per se, uh, but not not obviously crazy, but it's maybe just outside the border of realistic that you could say, oh my gosh, if you see this, we are on the right track. On the same token, if you see this, oh my gosh, it's, it's really going to get bad. Sure. Uh, sure. So it, for me, it's going to be PPI and, and I would love drone delivery, but I, I always think of the parks and rec situation where the drones show up and Ron Swanson shoots it out of the sky. <laughs> okay. I just, I just always think of that when you look at drone delivery, because that has been talked about and then it becomes like an FAA issue, but it, it is mm -hmm. an interesting thing. So when you look at one of the things that I, I look at at this point is PPI and producer price index. And, and when you take that and then turn it into PCE, which is just something that the Fed looks at, those are the two pieces that are going to be pivotal for where are we in this situation. So PPI coming in much lower than expected is a, is a positive because it means that the supply chain is catching up with itself. You're starting to see some of that raw material. You're starting to see some of these adjustments at the, which just means that on the consumer side, we're past the peak and we'll start to see some of this cooling off, which would be a nice positive from that, from that level. And then that would feed into PCE in terms of what is the Fed going to look at? Is that deemed kind of that transitory setup? Are we going to start to see this get better? I think those are the key things to watch going over the next month. And, and it's not so much against estimates because estimates have, have shown to be fairly wrong, but it's going to be how, how far, cl how close are we to a negative number that's showing something that is, and, and again, doesn't have to be fully negative, but are we starting to see things cooling off in the right direction? 
See, I was afraid you were going to say on the negative side, China invading Taiwan, <laughs> and on the positive side, you getting a Fed appointment. Okay, so that was very good. I was well. Kind of there is a guy stepping down. I I, <laughs> I, I, I would throw my hat in that ring in a heartbeat. I know. Again, like I, I like to be part of the solution. I'm not going to sit here and complain. I I would be more than happy to step in the ring and and be the guy taking bullets, uh, you know, in front of Congress and in front of the public to do the right thing. Listen, listen, listen. This is me and you talking here. Okay. Um, when you get your Fed appointment, don't make trades on the stock market. Okay. But what you can do is you can call me. I'll make <laughs> trades and I'll cut you in when you step down. Okay. I'll, I'll have a nice little nest egg for you, a little slice right. of the pie. And then when you step down, we'll just, we'll just transfer. We'll pay you some kind of consulting fee and pay that out. Um, so I mean, that, that works for me. It's funny because you look at Congress looking to pass uh, restricting uh, Fed governors and, and Fed presidents and Fed employees from, from trading stocks. It's like, can we throw you in that as well? Yeah. Can, we, can we include <laughs> Congress? Because the last time I checked, when you're making you know, you know $150,000 to $200,000 a year, you shouldn't amass hundreds of millions of dollars of, uh, of wealth being in this situation. You, you would you would throw that monkey wrench right here as time expires because I've got I've got a lot to say about that. <laughs> okay, just teeing it up for next time. Got to keep people coming back for more. Oh gracious, oh gracious. I um yeah no, it's uh it it is it is interesting when you see just to kind of just a second on this when you see kind of those stories break. You're like hmm, that seems like we should have dealt with that a long time ago. But then what actually happens is they'll write the law and then there's some loophole around it. And part of the problem to get on a libertarian train here is as long as the government's that big and there's that much money at stake, let's be completely honest here. If Mark Rosano was a Fed chair, everyone that knows him would be asking him for tips and insights and hints. And even if you weren't giving them, I'd be asking you questions. And if you reacted a certain <laughs> way, I'd be like, okay, okay, okay. I'm telling you, he, yep. he thought this, he thought this. And so, um, Okay, one more question from a listener here, and we'll go. Is there a solution as long as government is still involved? I'm cut in on this deal. I will have to blackmail Ryan otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the um, – I, I don't know if you remember back when uh, um, when Greenspan was was Fed chair, there was, they, there was the briefcase. How thick was his briefcase? Mm. If it was thick, it meant that there was going to be a big change. And if it was thin, it meant that the Fed was going to keep things the same. Mm -hmm. And I always think of like, well, if I have a thick briefcase, that's that, that means that it's a yes on trade. You know, it's it, going back to uh, uh, one of the what was it the Showtime show of like I do not and you know giving some kind of code word, but I think it's a great question on the government and looking at its involvement. And and I think the the, the clear answer at this point is is no. Uh, as long as the government is still involved, it's not going to get better. You know, they create more red tape. They create more restriction in terms of where things sit and what this is going to look like. You know, when you just look at pipelines, for an example, you know, people who work in the oil and gas industry typically like to be outdoors. They they're, they like to be in, in nature. So to think that they're going to go out and on purpose destroy the environment for the reasons that we talk about no, they're, they're not. That, that's not their. They, they're looking to deliver service because they believe in what they're doing. They believe in feeding their family and, and trying to pr provide for a, a, a very you know, robust economy. And, and if you look at just how the government has stepped in consistently and not to say that there shouldn't be, you know, we're not going to go down and cut the redwoods to build a to build a, a nuclear facility like that's that's foolish. Like there needs to be some balance on both sides. 
But to step in and block something is just foolish when you meet all the requirements, you're going to do all the remediation, you're going to meet all of these different levels. And then to come in let, at, at the end of the day and say, nah, we still don't agree. It's like, but there needs to be a middle right. ground. And, and I think at this point, the government has overstepped completely. And now I'm fully vaccinated. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't get vaccinated, but to mandate it, becomes a overstep. You start to start, you, you, you're on this slippery slope in terms of where does the government stop telling you how to live your life, how to do these things. And again, like, you know, people try to liken it back and forth to smoking indoors or seatbelts. And, and that's fine. It's like, if you don't want to wear a seatbelt that then your insurance premiums should go up. If you don't, if you want to smoke a cigarette, that's fine. I have no issue with you smoking a cigarette, but your you should pay more for insurance because their chance of getting lung cancer is clearly higher than mine. So again, you do you. Yeah, it goes that's back fun. to yeah, it goes back to the um, the gasoline discussion earlier, right? You know, price gouging, you know, raising prices is the same the same principle, different industry. Um, and so yeah, I agree hundred percent. And I'll just say this: um, a couple things. One. Um, put Rosano on the Fed, and this make me not to be president. I'd prefer you vice president of the U.S. because that's kind of that job where you really, you really don't do a lot. You know, you're just kind of there. Um, and then you know, we'll, we'll figure out how to get money to to our peeps. Well, I mean, and and I can bring you in as a consultant. We can oh. figure out how to open up Fed swaps for some of these uh, African <laughs> nations, make it easier for them get to get access to dollars, and help really start coordinating off the Belt and Road Initiative and the uh, the the BRI investment in Africa. Yeah, no, 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 no doubt. Okay, um, Ben Samuel's coming in here late. With the, I want to I, I want to say <laughs> yes to end the Fed, but. <laughs> I am in a, I, I, it's just, they've become too political and they're not separate as they once were. When you look at like Volcker, he would get death threats for doing what he was doing. That was not something that was going to be attainable for the politicians involved. And right now they just do the whims of whatever the market wants, mm. whatever the politicians want. And really what's not right for long-term growth in terms of soft landing versus hard landing. Like, we have home prices exploding and you're still buying $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities. Are you kidding me? Like, wh why are we doing this? Yeah, I'll make it really simple for you on my perspective. The Fed, you get into private-owned kind of quasi-government entity, owns the banks, and business with the banks, and yet they are telling American citizens that they can't bank there. Yet it's our money they're kind of getting because it's being printed and loaned. And so you get into like how that works. It seems to be a... Um, Whoa, 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 whoa. You sound like a true politician. Let me make money and screw the public. Listen, listen, <laughs> listen, listen. I resemble that comment so much that, you know, if I were a politician, the first thing I would do is bring on Rosano to advise me. <laughs> yes, I would probably screw everyone over, but Rosano would be out there on brand every day <laughs> bringing the facts. So okay. I, would, I would be the one keeping, keeping the faith in, in everything. I wouldn't screw you as bad, right? Okay, all <laughs> that's right. What I'm, that's what I'm going to run on. Run Ray 2024, I won't screw you as bad. Like, <laughs> I'm going to hose you, but as bad. Okay, all right, Mark, where can people find you? So you can find me, uh, my my Twitter handle is at MarkFNY. Uh, you can find me on Primary Vision Network, which is uh, our YouTube channel, or you can email me at mrosano at c6capitalholdings.com. And I know you make me call you the Matrix. Does everyone else have to call you the Matrix, or how does that work? <laughs> no, that, that's just that's just you. But I do this like me. the fact that it's sticking. To be honest okay. with you, I think I think it's good. 
Okay, Mark, it's great as always. And um, we will talk to you again next month. Absolutely. Thank you.